Well, this morning I wanted to do some teaching on the new covenant. Jesus said this is a new covenant. It doesn't say uh, the exact word there in Mark's gospel. It does in Luke. And Paul taught that as well that this is a new covenant. Jesus said this is a new covenant in my blood. Interestingly, if you're, if you're familiar at all with the Passover Seder, the cup gets passed many times. And each time it symbolizes something different. At this point in the meal, theologians have figured out that they were on cup number three, which is the cup of blessing. Later, Jesus would leave and go to the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And pray what? Lord, may this cup pass from me. What cup? Which cup? The cup of God's wrath that he had been storing up against sinners, ready to pour out on sinners. And Jesus would drink that cup all the way to the dregs. He asked God that there be another way, that the cup could pass from him, but not my will be done, but yours. And, of course, he did drink that cup. He took the cup of wrath so we could enjoy the cup of blessing. So much beautiful history and symbolism and meaning in these things Part of the reason we come to church is to search the scriptures just to know what it is that is going on, to see God's amazing intelligence and planning and redemptive history, how all these pieces work together. And as I mentioned during the announcements, nobody knows all that is going on, right? But we come and we search and we learn And we go through that process. There's a lot of agreement and quite a bit of disagreement among theologians about what the New Covenant actually means. Some uh, theologians are called covenant theologians, and they believe that the older covenants were a covenant of works, which required you to work in order to get God's blessing, the Mosaic Covenant, Covenant of Works, though they would all agree nobody was able to keep that covenant perfectly, so it required God's grace to save. Other theologians call themselves dispensationalists. Dispensation, I know, new word today, right? Or they'll call them dispies for short. Dispensationalists. It's a biblical word. It means stewardship. It means stewardship. All it means is that they recognize that in some way, shape, or form, God seems to deal with certain people in redemptive history different than he deals with other people. Not salvifically. It wasn't like there was one way to save people in the Old Testament and a different way to save people in the New Testament. It's always been by grace. But we all must agree that in some way, the way God deals with Israel seems different than the way he deals with the church today. So, does it matter? Well, I think it does. That's why I'm going to talk about it. I'll let you know why I think it matters. And yet, with the caveat that um, dispensationalists and covenant theologians get along just fine, because we major on the majors. But I believe some of these minor doctrines can really affect the way that we worship, the way we do church, and the way we treat Israel. So, 
just to let you know, like, kind of who the camps are, R.C. Sproul, Covenant Theologian. John MacArthur, Dispensationalist. R.C. Sproul's been coming to John MacArthur's conference every year until he could no longer fly. John flies out to go to Ligonier conferences. So they get along just fine and probably have some good, healthy debate over dinner. And it probably gets heated sometimes. But at the end of the day, they're friends, they're brothers, they're believers. I don't know if Andy ever officially announced where he falls, but I'm guessing he's somewhere in the dispensational camp, but he loves to read a lot of R.C. Sproul. So again, there you go. We're not drawing battle lines in the sand. It's just to have a better, more fuller understanding of what Jesus meant by the new covenant. The best way to do this, then, is to affirm things we agree with and, and, and say, well, over here, not so much. So here's where we agree. Here's where we disagree. You're welcome to fellowship here and worship here if you're a covenant theologian. Everybody's a theologian. Everybody has thoughts about God. So you need to own up to the fact that you're theologians. What you think about God matters. We want to think about God rightly, with right thoughts. We want to worship Him rightly. We want to respond to the gospel rightly. All of those things depend on your theology. So you're all theologians. Some of you are um, more okay with that than others because you like to come up to the pastor and, and kind of debate theology with them. And that's a good, healthy thing as long as we both keep a humble attitude about it and search the scriptures and at the end of the day realize God has the final answer. We may both be wrong. Most of the time, it's probably that we're both right and we're both wrong in some areas. And so we'll look for areas of agreement. And I'm always looking to learn. And I hope you're always looking for areas to learn. I lean more dispensationalist. So Andy and I probably wouldn't get along as well as we do if I wasn't. So, um, Though I grew up in a covenantal church. I grew up in a Lutheran church. I believe the scriptures point me more towards dispensationalism. I see more continuity from the Old Testament into the New. It's not that God ended his program with Israel and is doing a completely new program. In some way, shape, or form, his program with Israel is still working. Still working. What are those original covenants then in the Old Testament? One of the areas where dispensationalists disagree with covenant theologians is covenant theologians say, well, there was the covenant of works and then the covenant of grace. But there's actual covenants that have actual names in the Old Testament. So dispensationalists will often say, hey, let's stick to the covenants that are actually listed in the Old Testament instead of kind of putting them all together in one new name, covenant of works. All right, so... The Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to let you know the five covenants before the new covenant. So there were five covenants. The Abrahamic covenant. God made covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. You remember the story. God called Abraham. At the time, his name was Abram. He called him out of the Ur of Chaldeans. And he said, I'm go to a land I'm going to give you. And I'm going to make a great nation out of your seed. And you're... Your sons will be more numerous than the stars. 
And I will bless you, and those who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will be cursed. And he makes his covenant with Abraham, and the way covenants were ratified was through blood. They would separate an animal, walk between the pieces together, and all that blood and gore was supposed to kind of symbolize this is serious, and if you break the covenant, may it be done to me what has been done to these animals. So, because God is God and Abraham is not, Abraham put, God put Abraham into a slumber, a deep slumber, and God himself passed through the pieces alone. So even though the covenant was between two parties, we would say that the terms of the covenant were unilateral, unconditional. There were conditions, do this, you'll be blessed, don't do this, you'll be cursed. But as far as God keeping his covenant, it didn't depend on Abraham's faithfulness to keep the covenant because he's a sinful man. And immediately you see Abraham dropping the ball right away. He lies about his wife being his sister. He doesn't trust that God will give him an heir, so he um, has a child with Sarai's handmaiden, Hagar. And yet God never dropped the covenant or broke the covenant or abrogated the covenant because Abraham wasn't faithful. God is faithful. He maintains that covenant. I would say biblically that the Abrahamic covenant is still in effect in some way, shape, or form today. And we see, certainly, God blessing nations who bless Israel and cursing nations who curse Israel. It's when you start getting down to the nitty-gritty and say, exactly how is the Abrahamic covenant in effect where the theological debate gets dicey? So we're going to keep it big picture And that's how we stay friends with all of our evangelical friends in all the different camps. Okay? The next covenant is the Mosaic Covenant made at the foot of Mount Sinai. Right? It's also called the Sinaitic Covenant. But that reminds me of, like, you know, Sinaitica, like when you've got a bad back. So I I stick to the Mosaic Covenant. Keep in mind that God saved Israel out of slavery before he made the covenant with them. Which ought to tell you something about God's election and his grace. He chose Israel before they made covenant with him. You'll also find that after the covenant, God talks to Moses And Joshua also, and tells them, oh, by the way, this stiff-necked people is going to break the covenant. But here's what I'm going to do when they do that. So it wasn't like God made the covenant and said, well, if these people keep the covenant, then I'll keep my end of the deal. So the Mosaic covenant, though made between two parties, also unilateral in in its nature. The Mosaic covenant, theologians uh, recognize, follows a pattern that other people groups of the time used for their covenants. They call it a suzerain vassal covenant. The suzerain being the overlord and the vassal 
being the people that need protection, kind of like a king and, you know, uh, lord and serfs. So, you do this for me in exchange, I will offer protection, I will help with your uh, whatever it might be, provide food, provide clothing, uh, but mostly that protection. Moses learned about this way of doing covenants because he was a prince of Egypt and got to see Pharaoh make these kinds of covenants with all kinds of people. So, God will often use things that we understand on human terms in order to um, relate to us in a way that we understand. So, the Mosaic Covenant is very much set up like one of these suzerain vassal covenants. It starts out with God, the suzerain, proclaiming who He is, why He's awesome and great, the great things that He's done for the vassal, and then some terms of here's what you need to do, here's the stipulations, here's the blessings if you keep it, here's the curses if you don't, and then it's ratified by some kind of um, uh, blood sacrifice. Later, we get the priestly covenant in the book of Numbers. It's kind of an obscure covenant. I don't think most people know about the priestly covenant. Remember, God in the Mosaic Covenant had picked out one of the tribes to be the priestly line. In uh, Numbers 25, 10 to 13, you might want to read that at home. It's a pretty graphic story, so there's kids in the room. But uh, a spear gets rammed through a couple of people who were sinning against God. And God, in a sense, was pleased by the zealousness of this person and made covenant with his family that they would be a a priestly line forever. So, that's not one we talk about a lot. You know those stories in the Old Testament where you're like, whoa, that's in there? Real people, real history. The Deuteronomic Covenant in Deuteronomy is really a restating of the Mosaic Covenant before they go in the land. And then the Davidic Covenant in 2 Samuel 7, God makes covenant with David's family and says, "You will, uh, the Davidic throne will last forever. The Sixth Covenant then is the New Covenant, and we always think of the New Covenant in terms of the New Testament The New Covenant was instituted at the Lord's Supper and officially inaugurated at Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And yet, the New Covenant is talked about in the Old Testament. There is a typo up there. It's Jeremiah 31.31, not 21.31. Does anyone, when they were younger in the church, uh, do sword drills where they'd yell out a verse, chapter and verse, and you'd have to find it? And stand up when you have... Raise your hand. Let me see. People have done sword drills. So I'm like, uh, uh, open your Bibles to Jeremiah 21, 31, because I don't have the scripture up on the screen. And Beth Yoakum says, I don't have a Jeremiah 21, 31 in my Bible. I mean, it was like instantaneous. So Beth's had a lot of practice finding passages in her Bible. She's still sharp as a tack. 
It's wonderful. She writes theological and evangelical letters to her family and friends every month. And they're just wonderful to read. That'll keep you humble. When the pastor needs correction from from a dear woman in our congregation. So it's Jeremiah thirty one thirty one. The new covenant is talked about by the prophet Jeremiah. At this point, Israel's been divided into two nations. And is it up on the screen? Yeah, and you have your Bible in front of you. Jeremiah thirty one thirty one. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Key in on that. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So that's talking clearly about the Mosaic covenant. My covenant which they broke. So does that mean that covenant is gone? It was broke. It was terminated. It was abrogated. And now there hasn't been any covenant with God between His people. And they're waiting for the new... No, because He says, but I was a husband to them. A faithful husband faithful husband who is keeping covenant, so to speak, his marriage vows with Israel, keeping that covenant even though they were unfaithful. So that covenant is still in effect, but a day is coming where this new covenant is going to come. Well, what's it going to be like? How is it different? He explains, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The pages are stuck together. declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And it continues on, but we'll stop there. So the Mosaic Covenant came with the Mosaic Law. And when the Bible refers to the law, it's referring to the Mosaic Law given in the uh, Mosaic Covenant, including the Ten Commandments and all the other laws. We know that by the time of Jesus, the religious leaders had added many rules to the law. They had added many of their own rules. So this is the new covenant Jesus is talking about. One where the law will be written on our hearts. Paul called it the law of Christ. The law of Christ. We've also heard it called the law of love. Jesus said the entire law could be summarized in these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor 
as yourself. And then during the Lord's Supper, or right after, in John 15, he says, a new commandment I give you today, that you love one another as I have loved you, which takes love up a notch. Love your neighbor as yourself means, you know, however it is that you'd like to be loved, do that for your neighbor. If you like this, do this. And at the time of Christ, the golden rule existed, and it read like this, whatever you don't want done to you, don't do it to your neighbor. Right? We tell that to our kids. Would you like that? No. Well, then stop it. Don't do that. If you don't like it, don't do it. Yet Jesus took it and elevated it, and he said, Do unto others what you would have others do unto you. It's the positive side of the coin. It's the harder side. It should be easy enough to just not annoy people, although we can't seem to get that right. It takes active thinking. Well, how would I like to be loved? Well, that's how God wants me to love my neighbor. And he expanded neighbor to to mean just about anybody. In, in your life. Love your enemies. Right? Even, even the, the unbelievers love other unbelievers. There's no credit to us if we love in that way. Love your enemies. But then Jesus says, I want you to love the way I loved you. Well, how did Jesus love his disciples and love us? Sacrificially. Laying down your life for another thinking of what somebody else's agenda would be and trying to meet their needs instead of your own. So some would say that when Jesus instituted the new covenant, he completely abolished the old covenant, completely abolished it. In some way, shape, or form, that would be from one end of the scale, maybe Roman Catholicism. And then somewhere else in that spectrum might be um, covenant theology. There's a new set of theologians who call themselves new covenant theologians. And the the scale kind of keeps sliding towards dispensationalism. From my study of the Bible and, and studying both camps... It seems clear in the Bible that the New Covenant has not nullified the Old Covenants. The New Covenant has not nullified the Old Covenants. So, I'm going to give you two false views about the Old Covenants and the New Covenant here this morning. We'll just focus on these two this week. Some say that the New Covenant completely replaced the Old Covenant, which is abolished. And if you hold to that very strongly, then you're also tempted to say that the church has completely replaced Israel. Those theologians are called replacement theologians. So when I hearken back to my Lutheran days, we had an altar, and the pastor wasn't called a priest, but it was pretty close. He had special garments that he wore, and he stood behind the altar. There was like a railing, and 
On the other side of that railing kind of represented the holy place in the temple. And behind the altar was the holy of holies. And the altar itself was like the mercy seat and the bread and the wine were there on the mercy seat. And in Lutheran theology, the bread and wine are still bread and wine, but the real presence of Christ somehow gets inside those elements. Martin Luther called that consubstantiation, which was a major drift from the Roman Catholic teaching, which was transubstantiation, that the bread and the wine actually became the body and blood of Jesus, and by eating it, you became holier. You became holier. It was efficacious. It actually did something inside of you, which makes me say I'm getting back in line. Not to be irreverent, but you get the point. So there's a priest in the Catholic Church, and you call him priest, and you call him father, and he mediates the new covenant between us and God. You have to go to the priest in order to get to God. You have to go through the priest in that system. That based on the new covenant completely replacing the old covenant. Just take the new covenant and superimpose it over the old, take all the trappings of the old covenant and bring it into the new covenant. So if you ever wonder why it is they do all those things, that's why they do those things. Oftentimes you'll hear folks in the community wonder if Country Oaks is Calvinist. Are we Calvinists here? Are we Calvinists? Well, John Calvin was a covenant theologian and taught in some way, shape, or form that the church did replace Israel. And uh, unfortunately, some of his writings are are fairly anti-Semitic, as in the Jews had their chance, God came, they killed him, they rejected him. True, it is that is true. Yet, God has not abrogated his covenant with his people. Paul makes that clear in the book of Romans. Makes that absolutely clear. Yes, in the new covenant, we are not under law, but he also makes it clear that the law never saved anybody. The old covenants were not a covenant of works salvifically. People who got saved in the Old Testament got saved by grace through faith. Abraham was called out of the Ur of the Chaldeans He responded in faith, and the Bible says it was credited to him as righteousness. Long before he got circumcised, long before uh, he did any kind of work, it was credited to him as righteousness. The works part of the Old Covenant was the do these things and blessing will come your way. Don't do these things and and curses will come. There were works. And there's works today. Ephesians 2, right? 8 through 10. By grace you have been saved through faith, not by works. So no man may boast. But how does Ephesians 2.10 end? So that we may walk in the good works. We walk in the good works that God 
what's amazing there is it indicates that God's already designed and created the good works that we're supposed to walk in based on our talents and gifting and His providence and who He's put in our life. So the good works James teaches is what? Evidence of our saving faith. He says faith without works is, is dead. Oh, so it's faith plus works? No, James makes it clear. It's the works that demonstrate that you have faith. Much the same way you all came in here today with great faith that these chairs would hold you up if you sat down. The works that prove that you had that faith is that you're all sitting down. There's, there's your works. I'm glad all the chairs are holding up right now. So, the new covenant has not nullified the old covenants. In fact, every time God made one of those new covenants from Abrahamic to Mosaic to priestly to Davidic all the way through, He never replaced the one before it with with a new one. The Davidic covenant is still in effect. Is not Jesus going to be on the throne of David forever? Amen. Did, Did David do anything bad that could have abolished the covenant? Oh, you bet. But God kept His covenant with David. God kept His covenant because God is faithful to keep covenants. He's faithful to keep promises. The new covenant has been inaugurated, but the old covenants have not been abrogated. Those are legal terms there. The new covenant church is made up of believing Gentiles that have been grafted in to the remnant of believing Jews. So yes, God is doing a new thing in one sense, but He did not abolish the old thing. Do we not see evidence today that God blesses those who bless Israel and curses those who who curse Israel? If God was done with Israel, I can't imagine them still being a people. There's, There's no reason for them to still be a people. Everybody can't stand them and is trying to get rid of them. And not even secretly, very openly. We hate Israel. We don't want to share the land. We're not looking for some kind of uh, treaty where we share the land. It's, uh, we, you know, there's many in the Muslim community that would just like Israel to go away. But here they are. God is still keeping His covenant with Israel. Secondly, the Old Covenant was not a salvation by work system. Some of you, myself included, grew up with the idea that somehow the Old Testament was about an angry God who wanted you to obey. And the New Testament is about a loving God, as if God changed between the covenants. God doesn't change. He's immutable. It was grace in the Old Testament, grace in the New Testament. When God revealed Himself to Moses, He described Himself as a God who is full of mercy, abounding in steadfast love. 
Amen. My wife grew up in the Catholic Church. She remembers feeling like God is distant. He's mad at her. He's hard to please. But Mary's a sweet mother. Go to Mary. She'll, uh, she'll forgive you. And her son will do anything she tells him to do. So she'll talk to Jesus, and then Jesus will talk to the Father. Now, I don't know if that's what was actually taught her, but somehow that's the impression that she got. And she went to Catholic schools her whole life, too. So coming to saving faith in an evangelical environment was just music to her ears that that God loves me in spite of me. God loves me in spite of me. Yes, He has rules. Yes, He has laws. Yes, these laws represent and show us God's holiness. Paul said the law is good even though it can't save. In what way is the law good? Andy's been teaching this for years. It points us to Jesus and our need for grace. It's a tutor. It's teaching us that we can't keep the law. But Paul said, if there was no law, I wouldn't know the sinfulness of sin. I wouldn't know. And Paul teaches us that the law um, is so hard to keep that we end up writing our own law, he says in Romans 2. And the thing about that is we can't even keep our own laws that we make. We keep downgrading the law until we get it to a place where we feel self-righteous. God didn't come and say, gee, these people can't seem to keep the law. I know. I'll change the law and make it so so people could keep it. That's not what He did. In fact, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. Praise God that His law is still good. When the psalmist, when David wrote Psalm 119 and goes on and on and on and on about how wonderful God's law is, we don't have to scratch our heads and go, yeah, but the law is bad. It doesn't save. No. When you use the law in the sense that the law is good, the law keeps me from danger, The law brings the blessing of God when I keep it. But I don't look at the law as my system for earning God's salvific favor. Boy, if I could just keep the law perfectly, then I can get into heaven. That's a view of the law that's bad, and that was never what the law was intended to do. Old Testament, New Testament... Saved by grace. It's been the same all along. It's not a covenant of works versus a covenant of grace. Covenant theologians will also look to the Garden of Eden and say that was the first covenant God had with His people. God doesn't use the actual term covenant there in the Garden. But the idea being from the covenant theologians, the deal God had with Adam and Eve was you get eternal life as long as you keep this one rule. Don't eat from that tree. They say that's a covenant of works. As long as you keep that work, then you're in God's blessing. 
and they couldn't get that one work right. And so then they needed a covenant of grace. Except, instead of giving them grace, some covenant theologians will teach that what God did then was kill a substitute. So see, it's still a covenant of works in their mind. I was talking to Russ Deering after the first service, and he's like, man, every time I hear about covenantalism versus dispensationalism, it's kind of like, hey, I kind of like what they have to say. But I kind of like what they have to say, too. That's why we all get together. That's why we all get together. Where we're going to disagree with others outside the camp is those who try to add works with grace. The Bible's absolutely clear, Paul says. As soon as you put works in with grace, grace is no longer grace. And it's human nature that if you even just put a drop of works in with grace, what will you focus on? That one drop of work. And you rob glory from God. And you become self-righteous. When we look at the Mosaic Covenant... Here were some things about it that led to difficulty. Either it breeds self-righteousness. I keep the law. I keep the law. I keep the law. Those were the Pharisees, right? Or it breeds a defeatism. I'm never going to be able to do this. I'm never going to be able to keep this, so why bother? It also breeds this idea of changing the law into something that you can keep. Pharisees did that too. They focused on the things they added to the law. And Jesus said, what about mercy? What happened to them? You tithe dent, you know, your, on, on your uh, dill and mint, but you disregard the more important parts of the law. Where's the grace? Remember when we looked at the widow and her last two mites and Jesus was like, what kind of system would think a destitute widow needs to give up her last two coins in order to gain God's favor? Really, you think that is what God's character is like? Absolutely not. So for most people, then the Mosaic Law trying to keep the Mosaic Law must have been absolutely burdensome. And Jesus came and He said, Come to Me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden. The yoke of the law. Yoke, the big oaken harness you put on oxen and other animals to keep them from straying left or right. You put a pair of oxen, a stronger ox, a weaker one, put the yoke on them. The weaker one has to go where the stronger one's going. If they turn their head, that big, heavy yoke will keep you from turning. Jesus says, I I have a yoke. Which tells us that the new covenant doesn't give us license to just do whatever you want. Don't leave today hearing, oh, so there's no more Mosaic law in the New Covenant. No, there's elements of the Mosaic Law, but there's certainly elements we don't keep. You're here Sunday instead of Saturday. You don't stone your rebellious children to death. I don't think most of the Israelites did either. 
there wouldn't be any adults. <laughs> and yet Jesus said, not one jot or tittle of the law shall pass away. What did he mean by that? A jot or a yod is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's like a little apostrophe. And a tittle is a little tail off of another Hebrew letter. And it's an important little tail or a little hat. Because if you don't put it on there, then it looks like a different Hebrew letter. So Jesus was saying, down to the minutest detail, this law will be fulfilled. And it was fulfilled in Christ. So instead of replacing the law, he fulfilled it for us, knowing we can't. And then empowers us by his Holy Spirit to fulfill the law of love. The law of love is harder to fulfill than the Mosaic law, and the Mosaic law was impossible to fulfill. We're supposed to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. How are you doing with that? I struggle. And loving sacrificially the way Jesus loved us, now you're really... Now you're really... I need grace. I need grace. So God's law is still a tutor. It's still pointing us to grace. Next time, maybe not next week, but in a week, maybe a couple weeks coming up, I want to look at six, six aspects of the old Mosaic Covenant and then compare it to the New Covenant And actually, a writer did this already, and he wrote the book of Hebrews, and he does this for us. It's a great exposition of Scripture showing us how the new covenant relates to the old covenant, but is is better, more better, as they say, more better. And it's wonderful how he lays it all out for us, and I want to take you through that. in in a couple of weeks. So hold that thought. What you can think about today is this teaching should be a corrective. If you are of the mindset that somehow you're keeping the law really well, this ought to be a corrective. Watch the self-righteousness. Jesus' harshest words were leveled against the self-righteous. Don't replace Israel with the church and start to try to keep the Mosaic Law in some way, shape, or form. They couldn't do it. You won't be able to either. If you're here today and you lean more towards, well, of course we don't have to keep the law. The law was abolished. The law is bad. Out with the law. You've gone too far there. You've gone too far. The, the law is good. There's blessing in keeping the elements of the law that God has given for His people today. Right? So if you lean t- more towards legalism, you're a legalist. If you lean more towards, we don't need law, we call that antinomianism or an- anti-law. Don't use your Christian liberty to say, see, I, I'm not under law. I'm free to do whatever I want. 
I'm free to act any way I want. It's not true. Jesus still had a yoke. He just said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Following Jesus doesn't mean you become your own Lord. You still have a Lord, just it's no longer sin that's your Lord. Honestly, what happens is we tend to bounce in between those extremes. The corrective is to get your eyes off of yourself and onto Christ. The perfections of Christ will lead you to repentance and humility. And if you're feeling beat down and overburdened, trying to be perfect all the time, repent of that. Repent of that. And put your eyes on Jesus and His sacrifice and say, thank you, Jesus, for keeping the law perfectly so I don't have to strive to be a perfectionist. It's a heavy burden, and it's a sinful burden to think that we can be perfect all the time. You you fall down that trap, and suddenly you're judging everyone else around you. Well, why can't you do better? In essence, you're saying, why can't you be more like me? Yeah. We should, in humility, say, you could be more like Jesus. Trust in Him. Follow Him. And He will help you to obey the law of Christ, or the law of love. Well, let's pray and ask God to do that for us, in us, and through us. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are a God who keeps His promises, keeps His covenant, We are covenant-breaking people. We know this. And yet we count on your faithfulness, God. Thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness to fulfill the law in our place. Thank you, God, that in the new covenant, the letter of the law and the spirit of the law is written on our hearts that you empower us to want to keep your law out of gratitude and humility and awe of who you are and what you've done, not out of fear. For those who don't know Christ, Lord, we understand that there should be fear. That is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. We thank you that in Christ you've given us his righteousness and perfect love casts out all fear. That we can boldly approach the throne of grace without having to go through an earthly priest. That we have a great high priest in Jesus Christ who's paved the way for us to boldly go to the throne of grace and bring our intercessions to God directly. Thank you, Lord, for these amazing gifts. Help us each day more and more to understand 
how great you are, and how amazing your grace really is. Empower us and convict us to show the world your grace and tell the world about how they can experience your grace through faith in Christ. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.